This show is sponsored by Crater Lake Taxi, Clean Cars, 24-Hour Service, Medford Airport, Wine Tours, Emergency Car Lockout, Towing, Battery Jump Start, Food Delivery, Ashland, Talent, Phoenix, Medford, and beyond. Ask about their loyalty program. Mention the Citizen 44 podcast and get a 10% discount on your next taxi ride. 541-333-3333. CraterLakeTaxi.com You are listening to Citizen 44 with Mark Aronsberg. It's time to make money. There's a story to sell, and it ain't all bees and honey. Hearts to break and blood to spill and pain to inflict. That's why they call me the love addict. Love addict. Love addict. Love addict. Love addict. Hey, everybody. Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to... Citizen 44. This is show number 108. This is part one of a two-part episode with my guest, Adrian Wilson. Citizen 44 is a listener-supported presentation. Could really use your support this month, especially if you can go to PayPal, PayPal me, Mark Ahrensberg, do a one-time donation. That'd be much appreciated. Also, if you go to markahrensberg.com, My first photo book is for sale, Peace and Love from Vietnam. 10% of the profits go to Blue Dragon Foundation of Vietnam. Blue Dragon Foundation does a lot of work with local families, especially children who are in crisis. Unfortunately, they have to deal with sex trafficking and all kinds of scams going on. But they do some really life-saving work. And part of me doing this book Peace and Love in Vietnam was to help support them. So if you go to markarensberg.com, click on the link for Peace and Love in Vietnam, buy the book, $89, and uh, it cost me like $70 to print it on this on-demand thing in the States. But I'm going to do a less expensive version here in Vietnam, in Vietnamese also, as well as English, and hopefully there'll be some more profit to work with. I'm not going to say a lot about Adrian. He pretty much stole the show. He's a really great guy, very talented interior photographer and graphic designer. He's a really interesting cat. He's a notorious guerrilla artist in New York as well. I was lucky to stumble upon him and him accept my invitation to come on the show. Also, I didn't realize until later, I felt this kind of interesting connection to him, the sound of his voice. And I realized about a week after we recorded that he sounded a little bit like Alan Watts. And I confirmed that by listening to some Alan Watts. And yeah, there's that thing. He's got that Alan Watts thing. And he's even got a little bit of that Alan Watts signature laugh. Anyway, a very interesting guy, a lot of really interesting stories. So we were on the phone for like two hours, but uh, on his recommendation... I'm going to break this up into two shows, two smaller shows. I think there's a little over 30 minutes in the first show, and then whatever's going to end up being the edit for the second show. It's the final day of the Mid-Autumn Festival here in Vietnam. 
not a public holiday, but a nationally recognized holiday for children. Lion dancing in the street. There's young men that put on these outfits of lions and some drumming and mooncakes filled with all kinds of delectable, delicious flavors. And uh, it was fun. It was like three days. We took Morphle and Mia out on motorbikes at night and watched the performances, got coconut water and juice, and just had a really fun time cruising around Kwangai. Ann did not get to participate in that. I guess she's lived in this area off and on over 20 years and has never been part of the Mid-Autumn Full Moon Festival. She took off two days ago for Saigon. She's got some stuff to do with her business to close out, and she's going to take some kind of a beauty class and start her own business here in Kwangai when she returns. She won't be back for like a month. So I'm hoping that in like the second or third week of this month, I go out for a week when it's her friend Yom's birthday on the 26th, I believe it is. And I'll hang out there for a week maybe and then come back together. Really haven't worked out the details, but it's pretty much Han Solo Mio here in Kwangai. And uh, I've got the place to myself. And it's been great. A little over two months here. Lean Ann and I have had our little things. But for the most part, it's been really fantastic. So she's gone. And I'm still doing my thing, taking my walks. Today, I went out and I came back with a bunch of snail shells. I've got maybe 70 or so snail shells that I picked up on the railroad tracks. I found a bunch of these really interesting heavy sea snail shells on the track. Like someone dumped a whole bag of them or something out there. And all these really teeny tiny shells, ocean seashells that I found that somebody must have dumped a bag of on the tracks. But I also found a couple of really nice vases today and some teacups. And uh, yeah, so that's what's going on with me and working on the show and uh, hanging out with Morphle and Mia and Lean Ann's sister, Fuang, and her brother-in-law, Viet. I haven't talked to my kids in a, a bit. I haven't talked to Zoe in a few weeks, easy. And I know she doesn't do this intentionally, but she's kind of ghosting me. That term will come up in this show because uh, she gets busy. She gets stressed with her work on campus there at OSU, plus her school stuff, so... Unless she's upset with me, which is entirely possible, she could be. I mean, I don't know what I possibly could have done besides leave her 2.375 years ago. But I did briefly have some texting with Sam. He didn't have WhatsApp on his phone. He had lost his phone or something with his phone, and now he has it back. And we did a little texting, but haven't spoken to him either, either, or for a bit. But I did speak to Val. And uh, she, unfortunately, had to put down our cat, Shell. We had Shell for 19 years. Shell was given to us by Sam's birth mother, Tressa, before she gave birth to Sam. She found Shell in a dumpster. Little black Shell. Amazing. 19 years. Used to say Zoe's name. Shell used to go up to Zoe's door and scream her name. Zoe! Zoe, until Zoe would open the door or somebody would throw a pillow at her or something. Yes, the cat would say Zoe's name. Got a really good show, Adrian Wilson, super interesting cat. 
Susie sells seashells by the seashore. 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 Try that, stoners. Here's Adrian. Good evening, morning, Mark. Good morning, evening to you, too. Really appreciate you spending some time to be on the Citizen 44 with Mark Aaronsberg podcast. You're in New York, yeah? Well, I'm in New Jersey, and uh, New Jersey is the reason why New Yorkers are depressed, because that's the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm close <laughs> enough. You know, if it's anyone I want to impress, I say I live in New York. Uh, everyone else, I say the reality, which I'm in New Jersey. A lot of really amazing things have come out of New Jersey. You, for instance. Now, are you originally from Jersey or are you from uh, the city there? No, no, I'm from uh, England. Yeah, but obviously you came ashore here at the Statue of Liberty at some point and uh, handed over your life to the Americans. Yeah, 2004, I came with my family. And uh, yeah, I always had an apartment in the city. And, you know, I've done various things and I was always in Midtown to be honest. And then I ended up with a place down in the Lower East Side, so I'm kind of an honorable Lower East Side person. The thing is, that if you move to America, everyone is really impressed that you've gone to New York. And it's a place that, you know, people spend five years saving up for a week to go there. So I just figured when I'm 80 and somebody's spoon-feeding me rice pudding in a home in England, I'll say, oh, yeah, I lived in New York for like 10 years. And they'd be like, yeah, of course you did, Mr. Wilson. And just pat me on the back and give me some extra drugs and put me back to sleep again. And then they'll Google and go, he actually did. What was your motivation for coming to the States? Well, I did a shoot for US Airways and the agency Art Buyer. Remember when there used to be a thing called an Art Buyer? Uh, she said, oh, yeah, you know, you'd do really well in America. And we were on like the cycle of housing where the value of our house had tripled, not for any skill, just from the time we bought it. So I said, hey, you know, the kids were seven and nine. So I said, I can get a three-year visa. Let's go. They're not in high school education. We can blow the money we made on the house. <laughs> By the time we come back, the house prices will have collapsed and we can buy the same one again. <laughs> so, yeah, it just seemed like a good, timely thing. You know, the marriage wasn't going too well. It was a bit stayed, so I thought change is good. It was just timing. You know, it's always about timing life, isn't it, really? Yeah, truly. Did America save your marriage? Yeah, we both got divorced. <laughs> well, divorce is the cure for marriage. You know, divorce is 100% success rate. You know, apart from odd people in Hollywood, nobody really goes back. So, you know, as a concept, it's like 50-50 whether a marriage works. But, you know, divorce should be celebrated for the fantastic success it is. Yeah. And we're both happier now. Well, that's key. I pulled the plug too. But wow, what a devastating thing it is for kids. I mean, we're adults and we can sort of navigate, maneuver through our emotional journey. But kids, they didn't ask for this and they're definitely the victim's Screw kids. Kids are the biggest Ponzi scheme ever. They take all your money. They multiply. They're a pyramid Ponzi scheme. They take more money than Bernie Madoff multiplied by a million over the years. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, I ended up a single dad with my kids from when they're about 14. The expensive, annoying part, basically. <laughs> and, you know, you think of yourself as a good dad or whatever. I did a decent enough job. They've both turned out okay. So that's your role as a parent, isn't it, really? A cash machine and make sure they stay alive and they don't turn into thieves or, you know, psychopaths. I failed completely. I have drug addict, thieving, murdering, disgusting children. <laughs> you have more than one, though. I have two. I have an 18-year-old son and a 21-year-old daughter. Well, hey, they've got time to grow up. You know, my son went through the whole thing. And the thing is, if you only have one child, it's unfortunate because everything's your fault. When you have two children, you realize they're different. And we all know our siblings are different as well. So, yeah, we all want to do better than our own parents. But unfortunately, if you're born with what in England we call a twat, or if you're born with what you call a swat, one's going to be easy to look after and the other one's going to be a pain in the ass. And it's not really your fault. I mean, it's your DNA, ultimately. But, you know, kids are designed to make you feel guilty and it's all your fault anyway. So it's that balance between taking credit for the good stuff and blaming your ex for all the bad stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's been an eye-opening experience realizing how much damage we can easily do inadvertently without intention and uh, really fuck them up. Well, the other thing is, again, going back to statistics, 50% of marriages have been failing for a long time, right? I mean, when we were young, I'm 58, you know, it was sort of a bit of a stigma if your parents got divorced, but even by then it wasn't that much of a stigma. It wasn't like in the 1940s or something. So, you you know, all the people we grew up with, 50% of them came out, you know, I'm going to talk about the billions of people, 50% of them come from a broken home. Well, it's not 50% of the people on the planet are crazy, drug addict, angry people with a chip on their shoulder about their parents. You know, most people in life who do complain are the ones that complain about anything going wrong in their life and blaming anyone else about it. So I'm not saying I have no responsibility over my actions, but certainly I have this thing that I didn't speak to my dad before he died and all that kind of stuff. And he was an alcoholic and all these things. And it was all very black and white when I was 12. And that's what your opinion is for the rest of your life. And then you get older and you realize, well, it's not so black and white. And like, you don't know anything about life when you're like 15. Right. So you're getting judged now by an 18-year-old who, not being funny, but they don't know shit about life yet. Right. So if you did your best, even if it wasn't great, if it was your best without having your life revolve around theirs, then, you know, fine. It is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, but it wasn't my best. Hindsight and my lack of knowledge and my examples that were set forth for me set me up to fail. And I'm not blaming anybody else because we're responsible for our decisions. But if they're uneducated and they're not in the best interest of the other person, you're going to fuck up in a big way. So now I'm just spending the rest of my life making up for that really is what it is. Well, this is what I'm saying about this Ponzi thing. As well as money, they really take guilt and just wring your brain like a sponge to make you feel guilty from day one, really, uh, that you need to give them more. You're not doing good enough. That's just a part and parcel of being a parent, I think, that uh, you're just setting yourself up for a giant expensive guilt trip. (laughs) but it's worth it and the other thing maybe gonna hate me saying this you know i haven't spoke to my son for like three years you know whatever like you know my dad was an alcoholic did annoying things and i've forgiven him you know and i've moved on i understand okay alcohol stole my father you know whatever i want to explain it away and 
I think you become kind of a man when you forgive your dad for all the things that you think he did to you, you know, that you've worked out when you're 15 and you know everything about life. So that's when you make your judgments about your, your family. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to take responsibility for your own actions as well. And if those actions are going to lead you down a path, then I tried with my son all sorts of different things, you know, encouragement, punishment, reward, you know, not speaking to him, speaking to him, therapy, not therapy, whatever. And he changed when he wanted to. So he grew up or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, that's something that if I only had my son, I would think I was the worst parent in the world, even though, you know, he's fine now. If I only had my daughter, I would think I deserve like a Nobel Prize for parenting. Right. So I was the same person. There are still several personalities having to interact with each other. You look at maybe your siblings or your uncle or your parents. There's people in your family that you don't actually get on with because you have a personality difference. I mean, there's siblings you don't speak to because you're not that close. We speak once a year or whatever. Well, why should it be bad to say that about your son? You know, if you brought him up and he's fine. It's your responsibility to do what you need to do as a parent, which is get him to adulthood in health, good health. What he does as an adult is his choice, isn't it? Sure. Hey, I haven't talked to my sister in two years other than a couple of quick chats when my father broke his foot because I'm so far away. Right. We don't choose our family. We choose our friends. Right. When I was a kid, I came up with this phrase and I thought, this is such an obvious one. It must be like Buddha or somebody said it before. And I'm an atheist. But it was literally, God picks your friends and the devil picks your family. Hmm. You can meet a thousand people in your life and take or leave them. But the devil does, give me a dozen people that can irritate the crap out of you, and that'll do. Now, I thought that when I was young that it was terrible, but actually as I've got older, I learned fairly quickly how to deal with somebody who was abusive and alcoholic and overbearing or whatever. I learned to deal with crappy situations or crappy people, or people that were just different. And the sooner you do that in life, the better, actually, because it takes no effort to deal with nice people. Right. So actually, as much as it is irritating, it's useful to be around annoying people, to learn different opinions, etc. And also, the harder it is as a parent, the actual more rewarding it is when they turn out okay. Yeah. I totally agree that our family are our biggest teachers. The reason that it's so challenging is they're here to show us ourselves and challenge us to respond and react and become emotionally responsible and intelligent. Yeah. And once we realize that they're reflections of us in many ways, that they're showing us what we need to do, then we stop becoming victims of them. We can leverage these things, which I've done. Like you said, I've forgiven my father. It took me 40 years, but I feel so much better now. Right. Let's talk about you growing up and where it all started for you. Yeah. So if anyone's listening to this podcast in the year 2085 or whatever, uh, I was born in 64. So my dad was one of the first commercial graphic design companies in Manchester in England. There's plenty of design groups or design companies now. But in those days, you'd work for a big company like ICI or BP or whatever. They'd have an in-house graphic department or you'd have like a printer who might have graphic designers who were at the printers. But there wasn't really the thing of having like an independent graphic design company. So my dad set one of those up early on, if not the first one. He did the first corporate identity in England for National Bus, which is like doing the corporate identity for Greyhound Bus. And then my two older brothers followed in his footsteps and they set up a design agency in, in Manchester, which is owned by Havas now and has 500 people or whatever. So I have these three older graphic design males domineering, 
my two older brothers are sort of closer together and then it was five years to me. And as you know, when somebody's 12 and somebody's seven, nobody wants to play with a seven-year-old. So I was handy for them to say, hey, do this daft stuff for us. So I always wanted to be different from them. That's why really I became a photographer. You know, I obviously had this creative DNA in my brain, but didn't want to try and follow in the footsteps of three older males, really, which makes sense. So I've tried avoiding graphics my whole life and failed miserably. (laughs) So I would say, I mean, fame is a weird quantifiable thing and it depends on, you know, the area you're in or whatever. But in terms of people knowing about my work, I'm probably more, uh, and I'm talking about graphic design work, uh, I'm probably more well-known than either of my brothers, really, if you Google me, if that means anything. So I've tried denying the whole thing. But yeah, I've always been a contrary personality, contrary to what was meant to be destined for me. So much so, my brothers were called Stuart and Simon, and then my my sister, who's after me, was called Sally. And I'm like, what the the hell happened to Stephen? Even my name, which is picked before you're even born, meant that I didn't fit in with everyone else. Well, doesn't that pretty much speak of some of your other activities? Yeah. As far as being a rebel, doing your own thing, having to speak your mind in your way, you certainly are kind of the black sheep of the family. Yeah, and it's like a strange thing being a northern child. I always remember my mum saying there's a difference between showing off and telling people what you do. So I had like double insecurity. It was like the northern don't show off, even though what I've done is really interesting. I remember being down my local pub and all my friends like worked in factories and whatever, and i I'd be flying to Vienna to photograph a nightclub for a weekend, and I'd try and do it down, saying, well, you know, going to Vienna is just two hours on a plane, like getting on a train for two hours. And and I remember a friend of mine worked in a factory, said, look, Adrian, we want to hear how freaking cool it is. We don't want to hear that it's boring. You have a cool job. Like, it's fine to talk about it. You're not going to come across as arrogant. We're interested. And that balance between doing that and not showing off is always something that's hung over me. I never really had exhibitions of my work. I never see myself as an artist. So you've got that side, which is the northern side. And then having those three dominant people who are far more successful than I was means that, you know, you're always just like waving your hands and say, hey, look at me. Like, hey, this little Adrian. Right. So, you know, I was always trying to prove something to myself or to people, you know, even alive or dead. So those are drives that obviously plugged into my personality or just wired me in a certain way or it all kind of snowballed. So I have that duality of not fitting in, which can be annoying sometimes, but also, you know, I have a lot of freedom. So yeah, that's kind of how my life unfolded. And through my graffiti or whatever, you have trolls online. And one of the classic things is virtue signaling. If you open the door for a woman, you're virtue signaling. If you go and see your mum on her birthday, you're virtue signaling. You know, everything you do in life is signaling some kind of thing that you've got a good or bad virtue. But it's just this like internet Tourette's where people just shout virtue signaling or white privilege or boomer or something. That's not a punctuation to an argument. That's just the fact that you have nothing to back up what you're saying. I remember somebody saying about me virtue signaling because I did some mural or something. And I pointed out that I literally went to Trafalgar Square to complain about apartheid in the 80s. I had started in business in 87 on my own. And in 89, this like local business school got a student and they'd analyze your business. And It's freaking hilarious, the thing that they say. All the advantages were like, well, he's creative, he's interesting, he's sociable, he's he's fine taking risks and all this. 
we're all great, but all what they considered were disadvantages, I'm like, no, they're great too. And it was like, Adrian limits the people he works with. For instance, he won't deal with any company that deals with South Africa. <laughs> and I'm like, well, why would you? You know, it wasn't virtue signaling. That was, you know, I didn't go to Trafalgar Square to get in the local newspaper with my name. You just did it because you didn't think it was right. And it was like, well, Adrian just, he hasn't really got a long-term business plan. And he's not really motivated by money and just likes to do the things he likes to do rather than the things he should do. <laughs> and all my friends are like, how are they disadvantages? Right. In a business school, those are things that they don't get. Right. And roll on 40 years. I opened a store in New York where everything was free. And the CEO of LVMH USA came around and all these people and it won store of the year and all these kind of things. And she invited me to a talk at the Wharton School, like a podcast thing. And the first question was, Adrian, you had this store for 10 months and you spent $40,000 how is that a sustainable business model? And I was like, well, Pauline, firstly, if I ran Macy's and only lost $40,000, I would be a hero, number one. Number two, how much did Uber lose in the last quarter? Oh, I think that was like a billion dollars. They still not made any money. And, you know, all the people that came to the store now think I'm great. So I've got this really great network. And secondly, to pay for the store, I had to work hard to get this money that I knew was going to be wasted. And just because it isn't wasted, I'm getting a brand new BMW or buying a yacht or whatever, which is fine. Other people want to spend their money on their pastimes. You know, it's actually good for business to have a hobby that's expensive because you work freaking hard to pay for it. I haven't ever had a new car. I don't have a car now. I've never smoked. That's probably worth $40,000 by the time you're 58. Yeah, easy. Hey. You can laugh at me, but the guy nearby spent 80000 setting up a vape store that folded after three months. So who's the idiot? <laughs> yeah, but you invested 40000 in making people happy. You can't buy that kind of advertising for $40,000 either. No. So what it was, I've shot a lot of retail. And I love shooting retail. It's got a real purpose to it and all that kind of stuff. And it was 2015, so I was 51. And my son didn't go to college. So I told both of my kids... Look, I'll pay the fees for your college and I'll pay your accommodation, but you have to pay everything else. So that way they get a bit of a work ethic, get a job while they're at college and stuff. Both my kids are a better version of me. My daughter is because she's more intelligent, she's nicer, all these things. My son was a better dropout than I was and a better nonconformist than I was. He just decided he wasn't going to go to school. And I remember when he was like 14 saying, Jack, you're never going to get a job where you just do two days work a week and managed to support yourself and i remember he, he taught himself video editing and literally he just did two days work a week for facebook without college he said yeah dad i got offered a job for like 100 grand working every day and i'm like now nah, i can just do two days and pay all my rent and have a nice time with my girlfriend and i was like jack you did it <laughs> anyway my point being everyone loves the olympics right and loves sports leagues but Nobody gets a reward for being a parent. So I thought once you hit that horizon, once your kids move out of your financial circle, you know, there's this whole debate in America. I remember this joke about abortion and pro-life, anti-life, all this kind of stuff. And there's three doctors talking. There's a Protestant doctor. And he said, no, life really begins when the child can be born and support itself. And the Catholic doctor says, no, no, the life really begins when the egg and the sperm come together. And the Jewish doctor goes, no, no, life really begins when they've left home and you've paid for their college. 
<laughs> and when that horizon comes, which we all dream about, that you don't have to be home for a certain time, you don't have to work because you have to pay for their college or whatever. I was just like, I want to celebrate that horizon. And my son didn't go to college. So I said, okay, I'll just give you whatever he needed. I had like 40,000 for each child, which obviously was completely optimistic about college fees. But I just said, look, I have 40,000. How much do you need for your editing stuff? So he said, like 10. So I bought him his editing equipment. Uh, and I said, the rest of it's mine. You're not going to college. So I'm going to blow it on opening a store. The other thing was, financially, we all have this dream. Whether you want to buy a yacht or a plot of land to grow flowers or whatever you want to do when you retire, we all have a dream. But actually, it's a well-known fact that fantasies have to exist as fantasies. Once they become a reality, you don't actually enjoy it anymore because it's not an idealized version of what you're thinking it is going to be. Right. So I had this idea where you'd go and you'd see, especially in Europe, some 80-year-old guy sat outside a shoe shop drinking coffee with his friends, watching the world going by. He didn't give a crap about selling shoes. He'd been there for 50 years, day in, day out, you know, sitting in the piazza with your friend and that's it. So I thought, how cool that would be. So I'll open a store where I'm kind of doing that. And if I open it while I'm still in business, I can put it through my business. So that 40000 actually wasn't 40000 it's twenty five because you put it against your tax. And then when you consider if you spend that forty when you're retired, that's your retirement money, which, you know, you paid all that. So basically it made complete sense to try out my retirement. And there was lots of economic reasons why it worked and it didn't make any sense. It was actually called the inutilious retailer, which means useless retailer, um, because he didn't sell anything. But I was like, well, as soon as I sell something, even if everything was a dollar, I'll be disappointed I didn't make my sales figures. So why don't I just say everything's free? And it was kind of a complicated store, and it was about manufacturing and retail and consumerism, etc. But it was just this daft idea that it wouldn't even work now because it was of its time. It was it was a perfect location. The landlord reduced the rent. It was already a cheap rent, 3500 in the Lower East Side for a basement, garden, roof, and full store. I was only going to do it for three months. And the guy who owned it, uh, well, actually his daughter-in-law, I said, oh, I'm thinking of staying open a bit. And she said, oh, yeah, we love what you're doing. We're going to lower the rent to 2750 and don't worry about the electricity bill. We have like 40 buildings. So I was like, oh, that's that's cool. I ended up being open 10 months just because it was so much fun. I later found out that that same landlord had gone to jail for 14 years for trying to kill one of his tenants. <laughs> I mean, it's like a movie script. He got arrested in 96, drove an old Buick, owned 40 buildings. His business model was he got rid of normal tenants through nefarious means, uh, you know, using flames or violence <laughs> and replace them with drug addicts and said, you don't have to pay rent, but I'm going to sell you all your drugs. And he had a drug factory. So all his customers were all in his buildings. So it was like a cushy thing. So when they arrested him, you know, he had guns, gold, three passports. That's a great Netflix show. If you want to search for it, it was in the New York magazine, Rent to Die For, in the Village Voice, in New York Times. You know, he denied everything first. One of his tenants was a drug user and started to sell drugs and was going to snitch on him or something. So he paid the delivery guy a bit extra money to give her an overdose to kill her, to quieten her down. That delivery guy got picked up for something else. He said, hey, you know, let's do a deal. You know, they took her away from the room, taped it all off. And um, yeah, he denied everything. It was an Orthodox Jewish guy as well. 
So the community were like, well, it's going for a good cause because you sent all the money back to Israel to fight the Arabs. So it's got drugs, it's got the Lower East Side, it's got crime. It's, it's got Jews, it's got Israel. It's awesome. I mean, seriously, and it's a true story. Mark Weiss. Yeah, so that was my landlord. <laughs> so actually, if he liked you, you were great. But then it ended up at all these parties, whatever. And they're like, hey, we're selling the building. You know, we'll do month to month. And I always remember they said, oh, you're going to have to leave. And I was like, oh, come on. Can you ask the new owner if I can stay until they get all the permits and renovation or whatever? There was only one other person in the building. And my building, when I did a Zello on it, it had sold like four times for literally no dollars in the last 15 years. Because basically what they do, and it's the same in Little Italy or whatever, all the community that are doing this kind of thing, they all, it's like monopoly cards. They basically look after a building for somebody who then goes back to Israel and goes, you know, hey, we'll look after it for you and send you the money in rent. And then after 10 years, they've died and nobody can remember who owns it. And, you know, we will set up a new LLC. So they never have to pay tax and nobody can really trace when any of this stuff's come from. But yeah, it should be a story because it's great because it's true. And nobody did die. Well, nobody that you know. <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah, I said, oh, you know, can you ask the new owner if I can stay? And the woman said, yeah, hang on, and just covered the microphone. And then just said, no, you can't. It was funny because this was in the Lower East Side, and I said to somebody, hey, you know, I'll not give her name, but he was like really annoying because she kind of lied to me about, you know, needing me out and everything. And um, they said, well, you know, they love what you did, but it got a bit too well-known and popular. You know, they like to stay under the radar, but she loved what you do. And I said, yeah, but she lied to me. And she goes, well, that's business. This doesn't mean whether she likes you or not. That's the business. You know, it's nothing personal. Right. No, it's business. Absolutely. 100%. I totally get that. Business and personal to me is something that I can't ever separate. I'm not making any judgment about anybody that does, but the ability to do that it's like people now, there's a big thing with ghosting, right, which came from the dating world where companies will just ghost you now. They'll ask you, hey, do this, this and this. And then literally you've pitched and yeah, we're going to do it. And then you email them and they won't even email you back. It's weird. And to me, the emotional connection with something, I shoot for Victoria's Secret and they sent an email, you know, when it was COVID saying, hey, partner, we're going to change it to 90 days payment instead of 30. And thanks for your understanding. And I replied, I'm like, Excuse me, I'm not a partner. You didn't ask me. Right. You know, I'm a single parent and you've got like a billionaire owner and Wall Street people that you're doing this for, not for me. And you're not meant to say stuff like that, right? So that's somebody who can't separate emotion from business. It's an obvious business decision. And I'm certainly not perfect or whatever. We all like to get discounts on things. But I like to feel that I'm not just screwing people just for my own benefit. You know, it's not through greed. It's through necessity. <laughs> <laughs> How did that work out for you in school? You must have been an interesting student. Well, I grew up in a small working class northern town. You know, just wearing glasses meant you were a puff in those days. Like you had to wear denim. People also forget as well, it was super tribal. You know, Britain is based on tribalism. You know, every town says it's better than other, every other town. There's this thing that surprised me about in America. People say, what kind of music were you into when you were a kid? Well, when I was a kid, music changed every two years. You know, it wasn't like Britney Spears for 10 years or Justin Bieber or whatever. You know, everyone talks about the 70s being disco, but it started off with heavy metal and Hawkwind and Pink Floyd. And you had disco, you had punk, you had craft work. There was more musical genres in the 70s and then spilling into the 80s than anything. For sure. If you were a kid in England, you were a punk for a year. 
And then you were old hat, like you had to move on to something else. You couldn't stay being a punk. You had to then choose new wave or something like that. Again, I didn't really fit in. I always tried using humor to not get beaten up, which mostly worked. So you develop your sense of humor. I wasn't a popular kid. I was also weedy, <laughs> skinny, and a late developer. So, you know, I hated the whole sports thing. And you could either do football, rugby, or cross country. So I would basically do cross country. It was all the smokers and me that did cross country. So basically you had to run off. No teacher came with you. So you just ran off to a field, sat behind a wall with all the smokers chatting, and then went backwards around the short way and pretended you'd ran for an hour. That was thingy for me. But yeah, so school was pretty grim, really. You know, and I also had my family stuff going on. So I was just really happy to go to college. I went to art college. I didn't do art at school. I wasn't really academic, as I say. I was like my son, only not as extreme. Because you couldn't bunk off school in those days. It was different. When my son was bunking off school, the school were like, well, you have to send him. It's your legal responsibility to send him to school. I'm like, well, how, how do I do that? I'm at work. If he goes to school and he leaves 10 minutes after the school bell and goes home and plays Xbox, excuse me, but if this was an employment place or a, a welfare place, you couldn't just let a child walk off your premises. Right. But apparently it's my legal responsibility. It's weird. If it was a private nursery, you couldn't just let kids just wander. That's your legal guardianship, right? That's right. I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying, in my day, you couldn't go home. You know, your door was locked for a start. That was it. You weren't expected to come home. You weren't discussed where we're going to move to or where we're going on holiday to or nothing. Oh, we're going tomorrow. Are we moving house or we're going to jump in the back of the car and go to holiday, which is it? So yeah, it was a different way of life. So I wouldn't say I enjoyed my childhood, but it was actually a very enjoyable childhood compared to now. I feel like you could just go out, you could have a laugh. You know, I got scars on my face, falling out of trees. We did daft stuff, nearly died in lots of different ways, electrocutions and falling through ice and trying to make old canoes float down sewage-laden streams, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it was just stuff you did in those days because there was nothing else to do. You know, that classic Pink Floyd line, you know, sitting around waiting for somebody to come and show you the way. You know, we had Thatcher and all that. You know, it was all pretty grim, really. The miners' strike and bloody Thatcher. So, yeah, I didn't do art at school. I needed one at what they call an A-level, which you do between 16 and 18. I hated the biology teacher, so I failed that on purpose. And I really liked the chemistry teacher, so I passed that. I got a D, which is the lowest possible thing you could get. So that was my academic thing, which is bizarre because I love language now. I love history. I love all these things. I never really got into reading. I still can't read a book. I read a lot you know, in other ways. So I'm not an academic person, but I was obviously lucky to be born with some kind of intelligence anyway that is there despite my best efforts. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was part of that not fitting in. Went to art college and then went to photography college. And even at photography college, there was this computer graphics thing that arrived in 86 that nobody wanted to use. So I'm like, oh, that's cool. It was basically the precursor of Photoshop. So all these ideas that I had in my head that I couldn't do photographically, I could then just do on this computer. So I worked on that for four years, but it was a struggle to, you know, make it a commercial success and knocked on a door and it was a disco magazine, like a trade magazine of every disco that owned. So I ended up photographing about 2000 bars, nightclubs, restaurants, hotels in the UK and across Europe 
for the next 12 years. And then there was no such thing as an interior photographer when I was young. There was no such thing as interior design, really. And then it became a thing. And so then I moved to America and yeah. Cool. Interior to me was great because I could shoot in a very graphic way. My manifestation of graphics was through photography. And also, again, you know, like my son, I just made my life super easy. Like, I'm not going to go outside and wait for a cloud. My life's there been away. Well, I want to be inside, 65 degrees, cup of coffee or a glass of wine. Who cares? There's a storm on the window. We'll shoot the other direction. It's all nice. I don't use lighting. I never use lighting. Nothing. You know, as much as I'm being a bit flippant about it, you know, I do work hard when I need to be and I'm very focused on the work that I need to focus on. But I also do enjoy myself. I would probably be called an artistic practitioner. (laughs) That's an old phrase, right? But I never saw it as art because I always thought that that was kind of like other people should call you an artist. It's not something you should call yourself. And also, I suppose like my dad or whatever, he would never see his graphic design as an art, even though it's communication arts. To me, the old fashioned way of arts is fine art. You know, it's a skill. It's like sculpting and takes years of practice. You know, you've got a certain fairy dust sprinkled on you so you can create art that other people have never thought of or inspires people. Whereas I'm just taking pictures. Well, that's part one of Adrian Wilson. I hope you enjoyed it. Really fun to have him on. He's a really interesting character and uh, clearly doesn't need me for this show. He can just pretty much go off on his own. And I fill in with the active listening of, yeah, every once in a while, which is fine. I'm here to present other people. I'm a conduit of information and I'm super happy to bring it. There you go. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. You can catch the show on Apple, Amazon, CastBox, Stitcher, and Substack, and a whole lot of other online broadcast resources. Also, if you've never checked out the show I did for Balance, Pure Now, you can find that on YouTube. Just check out Pure Now on YouTube. It's me speaking primarily with creative professionals from all over the globe. And uh, you may find that interesting. You get to look at me while you listen to me. Had some pretty interesting guests, a lot of fun. Chris Catchpole, who was show number 105. He was on the uh, Pure Now show. I invite you to check that out. And uh, yeah, that's what we got going on here. Thanks so much for listening. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. To help support the show, please go to PayPal, PayPal me, Mark Ahrensberg, or Venmo at Mark Ahrensberg. Your support is very much appreciated. I've got a new website you might find of interest, MarkAaronsberg.com. Check it out. Also, don't forget to go to Substack.MarkAaronsberg for all the shows, as well as many galleries of free photography from Vietnam, China, Cambodia, and Ashland, Oregon. A lot of really cool photography. Help yourself. Please don't forget to leave a little donation if that occurs to you. Thanks so much. MarkAaronsberg.substack.com Additional music for today's show provided by RobbieLindauer.com Thanks, Robbie. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. This show is sponsored by Crater Lake Taxi. 
clean cars, 24-hour service, Medford Airport, wine tours, emergency car lockout, towing, battery jump start, food delivery, Ashland, Talent, Phoenix, Medford, and beyond. Ask about their loyalty program. Mention the Citizen 44 podcast and get a 10% discount on your next taxi ride. 541-333-3333. CraterLakeTaxi.com. I am Citizen 44.